Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Robin Monotti, who is a world-traveling architect, designer, film and cultural theorist and commentator, published translator, former university lecturer and current film producer. It's quite a mouthful. I somehow discovered him through Twitter, where he has a large following and has been writing prolifically on the absolute craziness of whatever you want to call COVID-19, which has, in my opinion, caused untold harm. You know, the government policies have called caused untold harm through all of these lockdowns, quarantines, forced face masks, the destruction of national economies, and so much more, which we'll get into. So welcome to the podcast, Robin. How are you doing so far in 2021? Thanks. Um, well, I think maybe in 2021, I feel um, personally um, less alone because when I started um, with, without really any um, intellectual break saying what I thought about the situation, it was all the way back in March 2020 on, as you know, on Twitter. I think at the time of the people that I was in uh, contact with, there would have been more, but at the time maybe I could count in one hand um, at the very beginning, the people who were already sensing and speaking out publicly that were in my network, that there was something that wasn't quite um, right about how this situation was being approached. Um, in my case, I think when the, 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 the principle of the, of the idea of the lockdown came out, uh, immediately I started looking at the idea of putting a human being at home. Uh, my sort of training is an architect, so the idea of home is something that we have been uh, working on throughout our education. Uh, what does home mean? And what does it mean to be in the public sphere, in the public dimension, in nature, something which is becoming more and more relevant? And so all of these things together, looking at them, it made it begged the question, what do you do to a human being when you make them stay at home? In some ways, in, in, in many cases, against their will. And it became obvious that you're doing the last thing that you should do, which is weaken your, their immune system, partially because you're reducing their exposure to vitamin D from the sun if you're in the season or um, um, latitude or altitude that you can get it from the sun. And also you are changing uh, the daily routine, the stability that people have been working on and at for all their lives. And many people have come to a certain balance and you're starting to uh, force them to change their schedules in a way that uh, many people do not want. So you are changing the social structure of society and this is not benefiting the immune system. So who does this really benefit? Um, does it benefit the people who are receiving this as, a, as an order? Does it benefit it, the, gen, the idea of general Ill, illness or not? And it's clear that in, when it comes to personal immunity, it does not benefit anybody. It's, you know, fear is one of the worst things. Stress is one of the worst things. Reducing vitamin D. All of these things are, are clearly... Uh, um, the worst thing for immunity. So then we come to the idea of what, what is illness. And we have a very, I think in our society, we have a very mechanical view, which is you have illness A and you have body B. And if illness A is in touch with body B, it creates this disease C. And that's, that's how we understand it. In reality, it's not like that. 
if the body has a well-functioning immune system um, it, with certain treatments, which historically through mankind were um, nutrition, but today still they are nutrition, they can integrate certain medical um, um, items or um, nutritional supplements. Uh, we know that if you, if you take certain things, then you do not have um, a totally, almost like an open goal of an immune system. You've got a goalkeeper. If the goalkeeper is trained, he's going to save that goal, talking in sort of soccer, football, um, betraying my cultural sort of background um, here. But so everything, it, it was very strange the way it was, um, was presented. And it became clear that the more it was reiterated that that had to be the group thing, uh, the more it's, it's, it was artificially created, and it is artificially created, and it is, um, it is a, a direction that does not really help um, the human being, but it helps certain human beings above others. And so we get into a, um, an idea of uh, control, an idea of power, and an idea of money obviously by um, reducing uh, people uh, interacting in what is actually the, the birth of the idea of the city, which is the marketplace, uh, the agora or the forum, that's how the city is created. So if you withdraw that foundational idea of public space and the creation of a city and remove it to the individual sphere of the flat, the home, or as we're doing now, a sort of Zoom conversation, you're, you're dramatically changing the structure of society and the structure of the interaction and exchange of money. So it becomes quite clear that it cannot, you know, given that sort of money dictates ultimately what, the, what power is, how power is exercised and what power is after on many spheres and levels, it cannot be considered just um, a mistake of, of any kind, that, that you're actually reducing the exchange of money here between people and only allowing it really through the interaction of the computer or the digital um, interaction of money. And um, the idea of lockdown itself is totally new, never done before. What we did, what, what has been done before were quarantines for the ill but never, never for the healthy. So suddenly a new idea comes out. It's also not clear how this idea comes out exactly because, you know, we had even the WHO saying that they did not really um, support this idea. Quite senior members said they didn't really support this idea. And at the same time, you had, um, as we know in China, in Wuhan, a regional early lockdown, which is kind of what people expected of, the, of China. Um, and then you have the situation of Italy, where um, the media images of hospitals, of um, ill people, which could have been equally um, shown the year before or a few years before, because uh, respiratory illness uh, is a problem in Italy, especially in northern Italy in the winter months. Hospitals do get full. There are spikes in deaths. Suddenly, they saturated the media environment. And the Italian prime minister uh, calls for um, a, not a regional lockdown, which is what he was 
advised to do uh, in the epicenter of the epidemic, but he calls for very quickly for a national lockdown. Now, the thing that is not clear here is who told him to do it, because it, from the minutes of the meetings of the scientific committee, and that is the same thing that happens in many countries, including the UK, it transpired that this was not um, advice given to him by a scientific technical committee, and it was not an advice given to him because it, was never, it has never been part of any literature to do with public health. It is an idea that came in the 2000s, some people say 2007, from some areas of epidemiology which are not really related to public health policy in the sense that um, it was a very minority fringe idea which was always laughed at, at saying, you know, it's, it's just, it's sort of in a kind of, again, in a sort of robotic world where you sort of press one button and say it's disease stop because you stay at home, it could potentially work. The reality is far more complex and far more complicated. And disease is actually a result of weakening of immunity. It's not just a result of a disease. It's about immunity. So you do, what, the last thing you want to do is weaken the immunity. So where does this idea come from of lockdown? Well, we have also um, an admission by um, the he who shall not be named of being on phone calls with the pharma leaders and the leaders of countries. Now, we are talking about an unelected uh, software, um, essentially, mogul, uh, salesman, um, owner, reinvented himself as a sort of public health figure, ultimately to open markets for vaccinations in uh, third world countries, because it's a huge market for vaccinations. Now, obviously, I do not think that these things happen by chance. I think they happen together with a huge uh, level of industry interest, but also sometimes, you know, going back to the geopolitics and empire, sometimes there is an interest of, let's call it empire, to place its um, tentacles into um, specific areas in which we happen to have the um, supply chains for the other plan, which is the Green New Deal. So we have an um, attempt to change the production of energy into a new system or a parallel system, which uh, requires a huge amount of infrastructure, a huge amount of building work, a huge amount of um, uh, minerals to power it. And those minerals happen to be in the same place in which you want to expand your vaccination market. So these things tend to fall together quite nicely. So uh, when we come back to, the, to this quote of calls with the pharma leaders and country leaders, we sort of have to assume that this may include Italy, it may include the UK. Now, um, when we also see it in, with the second point that I was saying, that this is not really necessarily a person acting on his own. He may be the richest man in the world or the second, third, but he may be acting for the interests of a whole sector, economic sector, a very powerful one. 
And he may have been working at this or planning this for many years. Hence today on Twitter, um, a number of us were drawing attention to this books, this book on statistics, which was reviewed by Bill Gates and in which he said, um, this is uh, very interesting because it shows how you can use graphs and things to show a totally different picture to what is actually there, which is the title of the book, How to Lie with Statistics, or something of the sorts. So this is, this is something that happens. Um, and a lot of these people who are prime ministers or government officials, um, they may not even know this. In some cases they do, but not all of them. And therefore, you may have someone calling, uh, um, saying, we need to speak to you, there is this fear, uh, and uh, we need to do this, because otherwise it will be seen like that, and this is all my experts say, this is, I've been working on it for all these years, we have to do this, we have to do that. And at the same time, there may be other phone calls from straight, direct financial um, organizations, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, it could even be um, organizations that are not necessarily even um, democratically accountable like the World Economic Forum. So there may be a number of different pressure groups which ultimately fall back to maybe again a few think tanks that can be counted in one hand, the Trilateral Commission, the Group of 30, um, uh, the World Economic Forum and the Council of Foreign Relations, which are working together in order to achieve certain goals. One of them being a change into um, renew into what is called renewable energy, uh, which is a very debatable subject. What is and what isn't? Is there any such thing? But it obviously involves massive uh, investments of public money. So wherever there is public money, there are huge interests to um, take hold of it. And the two areas of public money that they have identified are, uh, one of them is to do with energy and to do with pension funds, and another one is to do with pharmaceuticals, and they have practically obtained pub public money to produce essentially private privately produced um, vaccines on contracts with countries where ultimately, the, if there is the, the profit that they expect there to be, it will go to the pharmaceutical company. So we have two areas that have been, in a way, targeted for uh, public money. At the same time, we have quantity ease, quantitative easing, we have uh, the, the creation of money, and essentially this money being handed back to certain um, markets in which the same people own the shares. So it's quite a circular process. So, um, so you find these, these leaders, and, and why I talk about the, in the Italian case, because it's also a leader who uh, came a little bit from nowhere. It, it's the Italian prime minister who's halfway between having resigned and not sure if he's being recommissioned uh, or not by the, the president of Italy, but anyways, they, you have a situation of someone who comes a little bit out of nowhere. And, and looking at what happened, you kind of think of a number of people, and one of them in the UK is, for example, Matt Hancock, who was talking about the fourth industrial revolution a few years ago and was um, essentially lionizing Klaus Schwab as his idol. And so you have a number of people that relatively young that get close to power, then they get too, 
to more and more important positions of power. And suddenly, when the virus um, appears, they are all lined up in order to make certain decisions. Um, and they're all in positions of power. And that is when you ask the question, well, was this really such a nobody that came from nowhere to lead the first uh, democratic or allegedly democratic country that uh, installs a lockdown, which then is the model that is copied throughout the West? Um, or has this somehow, somehow this person has been positioned because they would know that he wouldn't have certain strong ideological objections to it. Because in a way, if you have a leader that has been um, creating his political reputation on the idea of freedom or on the idea of um, individual um, um, autonomy from, as you were calling it before, a globalized system, then you would imagine that that leader may um, decide not to install or implement this lockdown. And then you may have another one that does that. And once you have two or three key nations in the West that don't do that, it's not going to work. I think what happened, what happened and what is happening is going considerably better than what even Bill Gates imagined it might have happened when he talked about the pandemic and when we had also the event 201, which essentially was an event designed to do two things. Uh, one of them was to um, cement the coordination of a pandemic response around the, the WHO and not the United Nations. They were very explicit a number of times that you should not go to the United Nations. Why not? Because Bill Gates doesn't control it. So it had to be the WHO. Uh, and the second one is the idea that people like me, who have a different opinion, should not be allowed to, um, to talk publicly or to share their views on social media. Therefore, um, when um, I, at some stage, talked about the efficacy of, let's say, vitamin D, of um, um, zinc, quercetin, ivermectin, and omega-3 fatty acids, all of these aspects that having read, been reading about them for the last 10 months, um, it seems by all sorts of measure are potentially what makes the difference between a short, relatively asymptomatic disease and a potentially longer, severe, um, even in some cases, hospitalized um, situation. Uh, so when I say things like that, that's when Twitter doesn't like it and suspends me. Not when I say anything directly about a position of a person in power, but when I say what actually helps people. So that goes against the idea that there is only one solution and the solution needs uh, public funding through emergency authorization, which is the release of huge amounts of public money, which otherwise could not be done if what I said is true. If ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine with zinc and vitamin C, vitamin D, um, works, then you don't need to authorize emergency spending and bypass trials in order to um, have this situation in which the narrative said there is only something which is called vaccine, which in reality, there's a number of different 
medical um, treatments that work and there are also many different things called vaccines that some are actually gene editing um, medical devices or therapies others are based on adenovirus uh, so there are different uh, different items and then the, the the interesting thing is as someone who has spent um, months uh, translating and looking at every single word of the of the book that I translated by an Italian writer called Cursio Malaparte, is that when you look at language, you realize that the way that language has been used throughout is, is completely incorrect. So you have um, something which is called a case, which does not relate to a disease. Never, ne This never happened before. If it's a case, it has to relate a disease to a disease. A disease has to relate to certain significant um, effects which do not have to be apparent on the outside of the body, they could be on the inside of the body, but they do not relate simply to the PCR amplification of two or three specific gene fragments which are only minor items essentially in a single SARS-CoV-2 particle. That is not a disease. That is the presence of a virus in a test. That's it. It's not a case. It's not a disease. So we have this one, which is sort of a, a, one perversion of language, and we have many, many more. Um, therefore, what, what, um, what we, we then get to is what, how do you define the idea of a, an epidemic or a pandemic? And then again, you look into that and you look at that that has been changed. Just a few years ago, the definition has been changed in the WHO's own literature uh, because at some stage it was believed that it has to kill a lot of people. Now, if you were to plan something like this, you may want to get the maximum effect out of it. Uh, and you may not also want to have the... Um, something like SARS in 2003, which had a much higher mortality rate and therefore disappears quite quickly. And so you may want to change the definition to something which spreads um, quite fast and quite wide, and that is a pandemic. Yes, but if it doesn't create the, the damage in real terms, um, then maybe it is, it is localized epidemics and maybe they do not require this, this public funding into vaccines and all these other items. Now, the, the other aspect is uh, talking about the economic and the cultural, the political and the ideological. The other aspect is how do we create the understanding of living in a society or in a community? Uh, do we just submit to what the people in power say? Do we attempt a dialogue? Do we attempt to exchange opinions. And we have again seen in the recent years that the way that the group think has organized itself in areas in which it should have been most important, like journalism, um, it has conglomerated itself around an idea that there is one view which is acceptable, politically correct, um, which is the one that your newspaper editor will be happy to engage with. And then there is one which is not acceptable. And therefore, you'd, 
this idea that you arrive at truth through dialogue, through dialectics, you have a thesis, an antithesis, and then a synthesis has been eliminated. The truth is already there, uh, and it is not what you have come, come to with others or by yourself. It is what your uh, boss wants it to be. And uh, these things all merge together and create a situation where now it's not, it's not um, in a way tolerated that the people who believe that, these, that the certain measures are not justified and have scientific evidence, they are still made to comply to those who believe that they are justified, who believe they have um, scientific evidence, where, whereas, of course, it is usually epidemiological modeling, which is based on com very limited computer data, and it is not really based on evidence, which is essentially the nature of the idea of lockdown. It is not evidence-based. Um, they, they believe they have the right to impose onto others a model of reacting to what is called a pandemic. And they believe that others are not allowed to have a different view. And therefore, they need to be punished. So this situation obviously becomes, even for those who hadn't thought about it before, even for those who are not part of the pandemic planning in general, not even in, in this case, they will see the situation and think, okay, well, if it's so easy, then from now on, I will just do decrees on anything that is inconvenient to me. Uh, uh, there's going to be an election soon. I may lose it. Uh, sorry, guys, but we're going to have to postpone it for safety reasons. Um, and there's a, I'm, I am on trial because someone has caught me doing something. Well, uh, sorry, guys, now we have to sort of uh, scare the population into a new variant, um, and therefore we have to delay every sort of uh, coverage and trial. So we have seen, I think, one of the, the most depressing things is the direction that journalism has taken. And this is one of the reasons why, in a way, I took to Twitter. Because uh, having observed how the people who were meant to be doing the thinking, the writing, the questioning, have stopped doing it. Having observed how one of the very few people who was doing it, which is Julian Assange, has been essentially imprisoned uh, in one form or, or another for 10 years or over, and, and, and uh, the highly selective um, periodical moments of, dare I say, fake outrage on this, uh, and um, the instead insistent outrage where when someone who is not in the West does anything which can be mildly interpreted as critical of their own country, which is not in the West. And um, that highlights in a way that the, the, the conclusion that I draw from all of this is that the time in which the vertical power structure in society um, was the accepted one is, in the West at least, is under crisis. And, and it is under crisis also because the stratification of wealth has, in a way, ballooned towards the very, very top. And therefore, when you come to this idea of something called an election, it is normal that the vast majority, given half a chance with social media, will vote 
for or will try to vote for what they perceive as the anti-establishment candidate. They may not be the anti-establishment candidate, but they may be, and they will present themselves as such. So they are not uh, someone with whom the so-called establishment or the power structures, which ultimately goes back to financial interests, can really rely on, because if they get elected on such a ticket and they are not already part of that system, they may ultimately decide to actually change something, which is the last thing that is wanted of them. Therefore, at this stage, I think there was a genuine, genuine fear when uh, a number of so-called populist um, candidates became more popular, which is the whole sort of idea behind populism, more popular than instead the more technocratic um, candidates, there was a strong sense that this cannot be allowed to happen anymore. So who supports them? The middle class supports them. So we need to eliminate the middle class. First of all, let's eliminate the transactions that they have with each other by turning them into digitalized ones so that then if they, if they become dangerous, they start paying, get paid in a certain way. For example, Wikileaks um, gets paid uh, in a certain way. We will remove Visa, MasterCard, we'll remove all that, and they had only Bitcoin. So... Um, this, this situation has been, in a way, guided in, in this direction in order to keep hold of power in potential future elections. And that's what they're looking towards now, in, in my view, looking to prevent uh, people making their own minds up and uh, potentially deciding to rally behind someone who they do not uh, control doesn't look after their interests. There's, yeah, I just say that there, there's so much there that, that that's great that, that you explained. And I, I wanted to say, you know, this is one of the reasons that I bring on people from all different cu cultures, all walks of life, all expertise, because, you know, people such as yourself, you can see the forest uh, for the trees. You get this bigger picture and you give us insights, you know, as an architect, film producer, a man with many hats, you have insights that, you know, a lot, a lot of uh, the other of us don't. Uh, as you explained uh, in the beginning. And then, you know, someone's, I just, let me just preempt, you know, some critics might say, oh, well, myself or you are not, not, not experts, right? But you, you've kind of already explained that, that it's kind of this scientism or, or pseudoscience uh, or, or where the, these powerful forces have captured the institutions. And so, you know, how many times have, have I interviewed or we've seen interviews of real experts going against the narrative and then being censored. They're like, oh, we only want to hear from experts. Oh, no, no, not those experts, right? These experts. And so, you know, a, a lot of what you've been saying, um, I totally agree. And I think a lot of the listeners will agree. You know, I would also add that, you know, I was 10 years ago, I was at the, working at the World Health Organization as an assistant in Geneva during the so-called swine flu from a decade ago. Um, and I, I saw, I saw a, a lot of things. And, you know, I would say that that was not a, pandemic in 2009, as they called it. And, you know, Wolfgang Wodark, the, the German expert, uh, he came out and said just what you said, that they changed the definition of pandemic to lower it so that they would be able to declare uh, a pandemic. And so I think they're doing th that same thing right now, but at a much more serious level. And so you've been getting into the economic and geopolitical uh, aspects. Wh what do you see going forward? Like you mentioned technocracy, 
uh, getting rid of kind of elections. Actually, if you look at technocracy, the, the, the purpose of technocracy, one of their goals is to eliminate politicians or have less politicians. You won't really need elections or politicians. Only experts uh, and technology are going to run uh, countries or, or governments. And so we hear this great reset uh, that's underway as we speak. W what do you see you know, going forward from here What's life going to look like in 2021? What, what are the, the plans of this, you know, COVID Great Reset? Because I, I think they're they're it's it's together. The COVID and the Great Reset are one one and the same. No, it's like part of the same strategy. So, uh, you know, what else would you like to share with us? Yeah, well, I think that when you hear, or we've all heard. Klaus Schwab talk about the merging of sort of political, biological. Um, digital identities and all, all of these aspects. And then we see about sort of biometric scanning in China um, and AI. I think this is something that is happening and it's in some ways inevitable for this to happen, given how we are developing technologically. And I would, although we can all have our personal preferences on how we think the future should be like, there is, I think, a place for experimentation, for development of different technological directions. And to a degree, this is related to culture, maybe due to China's having already implemented a cultural revolution, some of these ideas and also being a very top-down structure of, of, of society uh, in, in and of itself, some of these ideas have been implemented um, and are part of what China is today. The issue becomes when you're trying to do that forcefully to everyone in a very short period of time. And that is the definition of what the Great Reset is. Because if this is the direction that things are taking anyway, for some people, not everyone. Why not just let it develop in its own time? Well, because of money. So the problem is that the great engine driver of the Great Reset is a financial situation that we are inheriting from, let's say, the 90s, in which in the developed West, the, the societal structure is constantly um, pivoting towards a smaller and smaller percentage of people having all of the wealth. So this is not necessarily the same in China or in developing countries. Globalization has brought a lot of people out of poverty through also certain political decisions that China has made and other countries as well. So I think we, that's where you start to see a difference between the West and other countries. And also what are we, what is the West really, or you know, in terms of Europe, what, it, what ideas is it founded on? Now there are, of course, there is a nature of Greek philosophy um, behind it, of Plato. Then there is a strong Christian tradition. Then there is an integration of the Christian tradition and Greek philosophy. Um, and a lot of these ideas are ultimately based on the idea of 
personal, the pers personal freedom to an extent. So I'm not sure that these attempts to eradicate it have got a, what I call something that I have sort of lectured about in the past, what I call cultural sustainability. I do not believe that these ideas are culturally sustainable. So I do not believe that they will work. Now, this is where we all come into the equation because if they work or they do not work, ultimately it's up to us. Um, so the question is, what do we do? Um, we share ideas like we are doing now and sometimes we decide to take action. So I've been following quite closely the demonstrations that have been taking place in Italy, including school children. You, having, you have school children, so talk, people in their teens that are going outside the Department of Education and they are demanding to have a school open, which, frankly, they should be. Uh, one of the reasons being that it's probably the safest place in society, given that we know that the viral loads in young people are considerably lower than in older people. The safest place you can be is actually with children. Uh, therefore, the, uh, the idea that schools are unsafe is not based on the evidence we have so far, or we've had since 1918, which has shown that when you close schools, actually um, the transmission of the inf infections increases. So we have uh, school children, we have the Ioaparo movement of people saying on this day we're opening all the restaurants and they did. We have um, a, an idea called the Great Reopening in the UK starting I think this Saturday where some, some people have said that they should reopen and they may reopen. And then we have another one which is well if the Great Reset wants all transactions to be online, then the great pushback is to actually uh, try and reduce uh, all transactions online purposefully, uh, which may be slightly more inconvenient, but it may actually be um, something which over time may, may show that there is a different idea that people have. Because if people just go along and uh, as uh, as it's called in a way um, in sort of a Twitter um, lingo, the sort of people just muzzle up and do as they're told. Or in the words of Ian Brown's song, which is you're perfectly free to do exactly as you're told, then nothing is going to be returned to people in terms of freedom, which may be very well for people who are very happy with this, but some people are not. And those are the people who at this stage have to make even small daily gestures or, um, you know, protesting is one, not, not spending online anymore as, as a sort of ideological aspect is another one. Calling out the lies is another one. Uh, recalling the history of, um, the history of thought and uh, spiritual ideas in, uh, in your culture, which are ultimately linked to in individual spirit, spiritual freedom, yet solidarity with others at the same time. Because um, one of the things that is most painful is to see also those who are coping much, uh, much worse than maybe I am with lockdowns and all of these aspects, and to see how difficult it is for people out there every day, and to think, well, we should actually 
team, team up together and create a horizontal structure which goes against it, which can be called the great pushback or the great awakening. And, you know, if they're going to close Twitter, we're going to find another uh, aspect uh, um, or another platform. And if they close that, we'll find another way. But in a way to keep this strong sense of solidarity to those who are struggling and suffering throughout this time, um, especially because if we don't do it now, this this structure of power that is trying to assert itself through the Great Reset, which is obviously being sold through um, fake progressive um, definitions, one of them being the Green New Deal, uh, this structure of power will, will in a way become much more difficult uh, to remove or to, to challenge. Whereas now we're still in a position we can somehow challenge. So one, as I mentioned before, this writer that I uh, translated is called Curso Malaparte. He wrote a book which was called The Technique du Coup d'État, The Technique of uh, Change of Government or of Revolution. And, you know, he was looking at um, the Bolsheviks. He was looking at Mussolini. He was looking at Hitler. It was in those days that those were the examples of how a nation's uh, government was taken over by a minority in most cases, and uh, the whole direction of the country changed. And there were set ways that you did. You first took over the, you know, the TV stations, you got the industrial workers to go on strike, yeah, and sort of, you, know, you, do, you do that in a very brief moment of time. And he said that at the time, the duty of the state was to be ready for this and to be able to defend itself against it. In our case, I think things have changed. So we have to see what it is that we can do in order to um, make ultimately make ourselves heard. And I believe that there are examples in which the decision to lock down, one of them is in Europe, but I, would, I don't want to mention the city in case I get it wrong. But I remember one example where, which you may know as well, which there were almost nonstop protests for, I think, a two, three days nonstop and a a restriction, which I think was a lockdown, was ultimately not implemented. So I think that the pressure needs to be sustained. I think the protest or the approach once a week, well, once a month, once every two weeks, is not going to do anything. I think pressure needs to be sustained, even if it is financial, it needs to be sustained, even if it, it is ideolo ideological, if it's cultural, I think it needs to be sustained. And, you know, I've been at it now for, for 10 months um, in my own way and in a sustained way. And every other day I think, well, I've said everything I need to say. You know, there's nothing more to add. The problem is that if they keep on repeating what are fundamentally statistical manipulations and lies, then if we stop challenging them, then those will become the accepted truth. So in a way, we the ones of us who find it um, that that is our way to approach it, then we need to keep on doing that. The people who find more comfortable going, finding a group, going to the streets, they need to be doing that. And we all need to, in a way, do, do something because if we don't, what, the, the great reset will be the, become the greater reset, which will become the greater, greater reset, which ultimately uh, will be a situation in which we will have no more possibility to live in whatever way we want. And um, the fundamental problem here is not even that we disagree on lockdown. 
It's that those who, who say that something works are imposing it by, by threats of arrest, fine, imprisonment on others who are actually convinced that that is not the solution. And therefore, a society is being run in order to fragment it, um, in order to divide it, and in order ultimately, in some cases, to defend, to descend into civil unrest, which was part of the modeling of event 201, civil unrest. And so you ask yourself, well, what, that, what purpose does this serve? If they predicted it, it's almost as if the implementation of the lockdown, if in the extension of the lockdown, apart from herding everyone onto a digital currency in order then to, la to launch a central bank-backed uh, digital currency, which will be sold as pseudo-cryptos, they won't be cryptocurrency, but they will be sold as alternatives to cryptocurrencies, as the safe version, which will probably coincide with a form of crashing of the real cryptocurrencies in order to try and herd everyone onto this one. Um, if 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 we don't address this, um, if we don't address this now, the the it will get a lot worse. That was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would, I would, I mean, I would totally agree with everything uh, you've said, especially ways um, to fight back. Like, like you say, like, I mean, even doing more interviews, I sometimes get tired. I'm like, what else is there to say? But it's, it's, it's just as you say, like, we can't stop, you know, because if we stop now, then the truth will be said by the establishment uh, as well. I haven't bought anything online for many, many months, and and uh, just as as you're saying, I, I I try to shop at places where I don't have to wear <laughs> a mask, uh, so I don't give my money to to the people that are following the establishment uh, protocols. And the future, as you say, the greater greater reset is truly frightening, because and and as you said, Aldo Huxley said that it's the final revolution. You know that he he spoke about this half a century ago. That this scientific dictatorship is the final revolution because if they establish this technocracy using the technology, there will be no way for us to fight back because they they will be so superior. Like I don't think we've ever had a point like this in human history where they would get to such a point where there would be no possibility for us to to fight back. And as Huxley said, it's the final. Uh, revolution and it's a scary i mean we're starting to see, see glimpse of it right now i can't travel back to my other home uh the, to the, i can't travel leave mexico because you need to take these ptr pcr tests which i refuse to do and now they're talking about anal swabs uh as for the pcr tests to wear three masks uh and then now the eu we're both uh europeans and they're saying now you need to have these vaccine certificates that prove that you've taken these this gene therapy to be able to fly uh and all of these restrictions are coming in, and it's 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 frightening. And it has for me, it has echoes of the Nazi, you know, the German Nazi regime, a total eugenicist, yeah. eugenics-based uh, regime. It's it's to completely totally totalitarian. Uh, I don't know if you have any other comments as well as. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think that's uh, absolutely correct, and I think that what people should be um, looking at it in uh, detail is exactly how the Nazi regime established its own power from the moment that it entered government to, to the Second World War. How did it cement itself, especially towards the beginning? How did it all happen? Yes, it was through degrees. 
exactly the same thing that, that is happening now. It was through emergency legislation that then becomes permanent. So the problem is that you are almost talked at as a sort of an alarmist if you say, well, there are echoes here of how the Nazi regime established itself in Germany. Whereas in reality, anyone who has looked at that history sees that the parallels are extremely close, very, very close. And there's people like philosophers like Giorgio Gambin and uh, um, others who have identified exactly the same devices at play here in terms of biosecurity, biopolitics, as you said, eugenicists, um, and the, the validation that the medical establishment has given to the Nazi regime is so important that without it, it could not have been what it was. Without the scientific, medical scientific validation of what was going on in concentration camps, the experiments, the beliefs on a superior Aryan race, all of this, all of that was based on similar ideas that today we defend people, not me, defend the lockdown with. It's almost like a God-given uh, truth that shall not be questioned that the lockdown is and shall be, and anyone who questioned it needs to be sent to a concentration camp. Uh, it's not too, di too dissimilar to, you know, there is some kind of idea that there is a master race in the sense that if you question it, you will be put in a concentration camp or in a quarantine camp in this case. And it, it's only... That is not such a far-fetched uh, reality that we would be going towards. And, as I say it again, if you look at the way that the detention of Julian Assange is, now, this is not simply the detention for having released a video of crimes in the war in Iraq that was handed over to him. This is because he had access to certain information and to a platform like Twitter in which he was able to release specific information at specific time which could change and did change in certain respects the course of history. So when you get to the position of being able to question the narrative, that's when you become very dangerous to them. And when you're able to shift it because you have a very big following, that's also when you become very dangerous. Now, this is a reality, and they are scared of it. If they were not scared of it, they wouldn't be keeping Julian Assange in prison. Uh, they are very scared of it. They are very scared of him. In terms of the, you call the ultimate battle, ultimate revolution, Umberto Eco had a slightly different notion of it. He wrote a short pamphlet called Ur-Fascism, the Eternal Fascism. And what he said was that Every generation has its own battle against fascism. And he was uh, in one generation, and he was very young during Italian fascism, but he remembers it, he remembered it, that had their own. We're in another one. And I think what people do not want to accept is exactly this. They do not want to accept that it happens again and again and again. And we, talking about sort of human societies, we who do not want it to happen, 
because a lot of people do, we need to fight it again and again and again. Therefore, the problem is that a number of people will say, oh, you are an alarmist because you are talking about Mussolini and Hitler and uh, the, the concentration camps, or other people will say the gulags, and you are talking about all of that, and this is something that we've left behind in the past. It's not today. You are just sort of, you know, living in the past. Well, Umberto Eco's view, which I, th which I think is what is happening now, is there comes a moment in your generation's lifetime. Some people maybe have, have been lucky enough to avoid it, in which it's your turn to fight it. Because it is happening again. Um, and some, when people make the decision to not see it, very rarely they will go back to a situation and choose to see it. And that happened also during Italian fascism. Uh, people perhaps who lived there at the time said, at the time, we didn't know that it was Italian fascism. It was just the way things were. It was just the government was like that and we went along with our lives and we didn't know it was that. And so people who now choose to go along with it, they will say the same. Even if there was a greater reset, a greater, 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 it was just, then we just stayed at home. That's, that's, that's just what it was. Um, so I think, and I, and I believe that this is actually, and this is one of the reasons why we are talking now, is that it's in a way a call to us, people like us, to say to each other, it's our turn to do something about this. And you cannot, you're not guaranteed an immediate success. Uh, you're not guaranteed anything. But if you don't participate in this, then you're not really doing anything to change it. Therefore, if you, in, in cases of people who have children or who are planning to have children and if you if you do what do not want your children to live in the particular vision of the future that is being presented now as the only possibility because that is the problem it's not even that i am against all of this in principle ideology ideologically for everyone i am against it principally as an imposed uh, selection of cultural imposition by the few on the many, economic imposition, in a kind of cultural and financial enslavement of the population to government mixed with, um, with um, the pharmaceutical stroke, military-industrial corporation working hand in hand. That is not what I want. Can I, will I be able to prevent it? I don't know, but I think we should at least have a go. Yeah, I mean, you, what, what you just said, I think, I mean, you, you hit the nail uh, on the head and, you know, I got the book behind me that they thought they were free, uh, that book from the 1950s that interviews average Germans. Uh, and it, just as you laid it out, what happened with the average Italians under Mussolini, it's the same thing that happened with the average Germans under the Nazi regime. And it's precisely exactly the same thing that's happening now with this Nazi-like fascist totalitarian great reset that's coming upon us. And I think you nailed the psychology of the people. Uh, I mean, I, sometimes I even go f further that the people who say that uh, we didn't know we're just going along. So I think they somehow they, they know within them kind of what's going on. And they're just too afraid to or sometimes I say cowardly to 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 
to resist. And in my last interview that I gave, I mentioned how, you know, my great grandfather died as a result of World War One. My grandfather was a Nazi prisoner. Uh, when I was a child, we had the Yugoslav war, which I, I briefly lived in Croatia during the tail end uh, of the war. And it's like every single generation has this fight and this struggle. And some people, I guess, because of their worldview, you know, evil doesn't die. It just it continues each generation. And some people, I guess, they don't want to see it. They want to pretend like, okay, you know, they want to take the blue pill. They want to kind of try to maintain th that little comfort that they have and not come to this realization of what's really um, confronting us. And so, I mean, I don't know if there's anything else that, that you want to yeah, say yeah, to leave us with. Yeah, well, I, I think maybe this is a, a, a something to add in order to complete the picture, which is the shift in power can happen very quickly. We know that when it comes to certain ideas, once they reach a certain percentage of the population, they be, even if the percentage is less than 50%, they're almost guaranteed once they touch a threshold to be able to expand in time and cover everyone if they're based on an element of truth. Now, when it comes to human nature or animal nature, even, um, there is a sense of where the power is. So the people who maybe know that something is not quite right, but maybe don't want to go against the grain, will be sensing throughout from almost like an animalistic perspective where the power is and whether the power is being challenged and by who and whether that challenge has any chance of success. The moment the estimate of even the people that will go along with it, who are going along with it today and who may be going along with it next year, the moment that there is a judgment that the idea of, let's say, lockdown is intellectually bankrupt, which it is, but it is intellectually and epidemiologically and medically and uh, immunologically bankrupt. And this, this becomes a pervasive sense in society, almost an unspoken truth the idea will, will crumble and only force will be able to continue it. And that force will have a pushback once the majority of people sense it. So and at that stage, this uh, great reset is over. There are certain points now, if, you talk, if we're talking about geopolitics and empire, there are certain countries who have stood up to all of this. One of them is Belarus, criticized because of its uh, leadership and lack of democracy. But um, that's one country. There are, today I was reading that um, the Slovak Republic is introducing ivermectin um, and approving it. Now, the moment that countries do that in Europe, and it works, and the whole idea that maybe there was never any need for a vaccine becomes common knowledge, the lockdown is not justified anymore. There is also a, I think, maybe a recent shift uh, in, in Russia, in which Moscow has pretty much reopened totally, and in which there is a sense that this is becoming more and more a Western position to have. The 
taking away freedom has become the, de the defining factor of what being Western means in 2021 by the leadership of the, of the from the leader, leadership of the United States to the first lockdown in Italy to the, you know, there was a never-ending uh, in, in the UK for Brexit. Now there is a never-ending lockdown in the UK. But it almost seems that the defining feature of, West, of the West has become the acceptance of the removal of freedom and the imposition of the removal of freedom. Whereas I see a, a new block, a new Eastern block, which in a way is reversing the common understanding in the West of the difference between East and West during the Soviet um, bloc, which was that um, there was more freedom in the West than there was in the Soviet Union. Well, in 2021, I think we will see a more full reversal of this by the signs that I see happening, because one thing is Belarus. If Belarus and Russia decide to go down that path, now I cannot guarantee they will do it, but if, if once you have Belarus, Russia, then let's say the Slovak Republic starts to do something like that, Hungary, you start to have quite a powerful block of countries, and the idea that people keep on repeating, which again is false, which is essentially saying, oh, you are telling me that lockdown doesn't work, then, then why is the whole world doing it? It's similar to the basic notions that the whole world is that those, that number of countries which constitutes the West, it excludes all the countries that do not do that, and they are just out of the radar. The moment the country is off the radar, starts to start to conglomerate, start to show a different way of being, the idea is damaged almost irreversibly. And I, I see that happening to a degree. What do you do next? You stop people from traveling. So the UK is already doing that. You, you cannot, going on holiday is not a good enough reason for traveling. We will fine you and tell you to stay home. This is not saving lives. This is desperately trying to hold on to a, a narrative which is failing, not because the vast majority of people understand that yet, but because the um, change in terms of the people who adhere to it, for the people to, to don't adhere it, is happening, and it's happening quite rapidly, and if it continues in that direction, if people keep on traveling and seeing the other countries, for example, Italy, the EUAPRO movement, that was only from six o'clock because in Italy, restaurants are open until six. So bars are open. They're talking about reopening the ski destination. So in other countries, it's not as strict as it is in the UK or in, in certain uh, states in the US um, that are still maybe not under the, the sort of full reopening schedule, although there is a sense that in some ways they, some states in the US which were locked up may slightly reopen, but the narrative will continue being that of four masks on top of each other, uh, uh, vaccination one followed by two, three, four, five every other week. Um, so the narrative will continue to be that. The numbers will continue to, to be cumulative and therefore will be, continue to be an abuse of statistics where you count uh, three different seasons of uh, respiratory diseases as one and you compare it to um, other, other seasons which were only a single one. Or that any respiratory disease which, which leads to pneumonia, if at any stage of the development of the disease, it may have been 
linked to some kind of relation to any form of coronavirus, then it's a COVID death, it's not pneumonia, and so on and so forth. So in, in the sense, what, I'm, what, what I would like to end it in is that there is a sense that there are some power structures from a geopolitical point of view that may decide to offer a different route. And even those that are not in the former Soviet bloc, like Sweden, they're not far away from it. So I'm not saying that this power structure or this alternative view will formulate itself along the lines of the former Iron Curtain, but it may still have, um, and also I'm not saying that, that there are, all of those countries are not in any way touched by the World Economic Forum, by the Trilateral Commission, by the Council of Foreign Nations. Some of them will have members of government that are very close to all of these think tanks, but they may still overall, culturally, the population may be able to not allow the politicians to do that because the politicians will sense that the power is not with them. And therefore, once there is a critical number of these countries doing it, and that's why we have to keep, keep looking at those countries, keep seeing what they're doing, keep sharing how life is, because once there is a critical number, and once we repeat it often enough, more and more people will realize that they're, they're, the world is not the countries that we are told it is. It's bigger than that, and there are very big countries that are actually choosing not to follow that path that we are in and that we are trying to, in a way, resist. So you're leaving us with a, with a ray of light, of, of hope, of uh, optimism. Uh, I'm here in Mexico, and a lot of people say that about Mexico, that the Mexican people, I mean, we have a population of, what, I think 130 million or something. Um, they just won't go along with this. You know, the economy is too informal. There's a lot of poverty, and people are just going to do their own thing. And uh, flights are open in and out of uh, Mexico without restrictions. So, you know, that's one example, like Mexico, uh, Sweden, Russia. I think President Putin was just mocking the West because, as you said, we're going totally fascist where they're deleting social media. The president's accounts are being deleted, which is insane in terms of liberty and, and freedom of speech and all of that. And so uh, who, who was the parlor that was taken down? Uh, they, they just got hosting uh, in Russia. So, as you said, the trend is is reversing and now i call usa my home country the ussa the united soviet states uh, of america and so i think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there and i know you you have your website so uh -huh. just one, one uh, short thing which uh, i'm keen to add which is that um i know a lot of people who lived in the um in the soviet union and when it comes to the experiential um awareness that there is a power that repeats certain things which may not be true and in which you are not allowed to do certain things because other people will be the first to condemn you. Not, not even the power. Other people around you will be phoning up authorities if you hold, hold a birthday party for your daughter, which is what happened on the street that I uh, live in London. Um, now, that is reminiscent to them of what it was like to live in the Soviet Union in terms of the power. But in terms of the political system, it's the opposite what's going on. It's a form of neo-feudalist and neo-technocratic, scientistic aristocracy 
that is really a very small percentage of the population. And therefore, when it says, you know, you will have nothing, uh, when the World Economic Forum projects you will have nothing in 2030 and you will be happy in the sense that you'll rent everything, who is renting it to you? They are renting it to you. Uh, and that is not, that is, they are not the government. They, do, they are not doing the public's interest. They are a private, privately funded think tank or, or platform. So it could not be more different to the Soviet Union from a political economic organization. Um, and the, I think the only parallel that works in a way with the, with the Soviet Union or with other, uh, in a way, systems is the one in which personal freedom is constrained, but it is not the one of the political um, organization and power, uh, which I see often this, uh, this being made. And I think if we make this, uh, if we confuse these issues, I think we'll also lose sight of what exactly is going on, which is a consolidation of power for the 0.00001%. And this is not a consolidation of state power for the, the projected benefit of the people of, you know, a kind of socialist uh, system. It is the opposite. It is the opposite, but it is, it is being sold with a kind of progressive veneer. But actually, it is the opposite. It is, and, and the reason why the, um, there is an acceptance of potential civil unrest, which is something that Catherine Austin Fitz explained very well, is that ultimately this is when that same 0.001% will come in and will buy out the entire town centers, which is what they want, the beautiful urban town centers of Europe. Um, if there is rioting on the streets, the values will go down, they will buy them up. And uh, therefore, there is, it is, in some ways, it's what they want. And we may have to be clever enough to find different ways of resisting as well, because we can play into their hands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, as you said, we should be precise in our language. And it's kind of what, what I meant with what you said. And basically, I mean, it's this global oligarchy. We will live under this global exactly. plutocracy oligarchy, whatever. At the end of the day, it's totalitarianism private or public and it, either way it's it's but it's, but, but it's a fun you know the thing is that a lot of people don't like to hear it is a, a fundamentally uh, advanced capitalist organization where the small minority is in a way trying to use the majority for their own profit and that is ultimately what the great reset is about yeah, we've spoken to CJ Hopkins, which is great, based in uh, Germany. He calls it global cap, global capitalism. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. all right, your your website, uh, your personal website is robinmonotti.com. Uh, you're on that's Twitter. The, you're that's the work one. That's the work one. There's also one with more writing, which is nulluslocusinegenio.com. Um, um, it's linked on my Twitter, and that means there's no place without spirit, and it's where I have writings of all different other subjects. Yeah, I'll, I'll include all the links. And as you said, you're on Twitter for now. Uh, you're on Telegram. I, I'm, I'm loving Telegram, so people should go find uh, you and, and my channel as well uh, on Telegram. Uh, you're also on Gab. It's Gab, I'm also there, but it doesn't seem to be working so great the last few weeks, yeah? I think it's improved a lot. I've seen it improve a lot over the last few days. I think it was scaling up and it was very slow, but I think I'm seeing a very big change. So I'm hoping that it will be, it will be uh, as... 
uh, effective as Twitter quite soon. All right. Uh, as I said, people should follow Robin's uh, Twitter, Telegram, absolutely fantastic sources of information. I check it uh, very often. And so pe people should go there to subscribe and follow his commentary. Uh, and so thank you for being on Geopolitics thank and you. Empire. Or should I say thank grazie, you. grazie. There you go. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.